I don't know many people who enjoy uncertainty, but leadership is all about navigating through uncertainty to lead positive change. In this episode, how experimentation can help you move forward through lots of complexity. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 613. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Many of us really do want to do an even better job at trying new things, at being innovative, at experimenting. And yet we all struggle, at least I do, with wanting to control so many things in our lives and in our work, of course. Today, a conversation about how we can get a bit better at experimentation. And I'm so glad to welcome someone who's done so much thinking on this, will help us to explore this complex topic, but help us to just get started a bit better. I'm so pleased to introduce to you Jennifer Garvey Berger. Jennifer believes that leadership is one of the most vital renewable resources in the world. She designs and teaches leadership programs, coaches senior teams, and supports new ways of thinking about strategy and people. In her three highly acclaimed books, Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, Simple Habits for Complex Teams, and Changing on the Job, she builds on deep theoretical knowledge to offer practical ways to make leaders work more meaningful and their lives more fun. She has worked with senior leaders in the private, nonprofit, and government sectors around the world in organizations like Novartis, Google, KPMG, Intel, Microsoft, Wikimedia, and the New Zealand Department of Conservation. Jennifer also supports executives one-on-one as a leadership coach. Over the last decade, she has developed the Growth Edge coaching approach. She supports clients to find their current growing edge and then make choices about how they want to develop. She teaches coaches around the world transformational and developmental coaching approaches in her Growth Edge coaching certification series. Jennifer also speaks at leadership and coaching conferences and offers courses for coaches at universities all around the world. She is the author with Carolyn Coughlin of Unleashing Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. Jennifer, what a pleasure to have you on. Thanks. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. I loved reading this book, and there's so many places that I highlighted and and so many avenues I wanted to go with this conversation. But for me, it started with this small passage that I grabbed as I got into your work. You write, We begin to believe too much that we can control the universe. The systems and structures, particularly in our organizations, trick us into believing that there is much more about the world that is complicated and much less about the world that is complex. We humans enjoy the feeling of being in control and knowing what happens next, so we act as though that's possible even when it isn't. I read that and I had two thoughts. One is, boy, I like controlling things too, (laughs) whenever I can, or at least having the illusion. The other thought I had is, there's a big distinction there between complexity and what's complicated. And I was wondering if you could illuminate that distinction a bit. Yeah, I I find this distinction so helpful, Dave, in my own life. And many have written about it, but the the thought leader whose ideas I follow most closely is Dave Snowden, who makes this distinction between systems that are 
complicated, ordered. They're predictable, but they're tricky. You can expect the same the the same outcome as you solve a problem across contexts, but the problems themselves require expertise or experience or some kind of knowledge. They're they're not obvious. They're not not problems anybody could solve. But once they're solved, you would expect them to stay solved. I can't do my taxes by myself because I live across many countries and I couldn't possibly figure out all those rules. But I expect the team of accountants to be able to figure it out and for the taxes, once they're completed for a year, to stay completed. You contrast that with complex challenges. And those are necessarily entangled, emergent, and uncontrollable, right? No one person can solve a complex challenge. And we would expect the context to be super important here so that something that you do well in one place, you go to another place, it might not happen well at all. As anybody who's started one business and then started a second business or had one baby and then had a second baby would tell you that experience here is sometimes your friend and sometimes it's your enemy because complexity is necessarily about the novel, the new, the paying attention to what's emerging right now and working with that instead of relying on on things you've done before. You quote one of our past guests in the book, Lisa Feldman Barrett, and she writes, uncertainty is more unpleasant and arousing than assured harm. Because if the future is a mystery, you can't prepare for it. And she goes on to write, When people are seriously ill but have an excellent chance of recovery, they are less satisfied with life than people who know their disease is permanent. And I was thinking about that in the context of complexity. We really don't like complexity as human beings, do we? (laughs) (laughs) We really don't. We really don't. That that line is one of the most haunting pieces of research I've read. This idea that if you know that you're not going to get better, you're happier with your life than if you might get better. I mean, that is just, that really for me highlights how much we hate uncertainty, complexity, and those things we can't control. Yeah, which which begs the question, I suppose, like, how do we deal with the complexity? Because so much of leadership is complexity. And you write, we tend to want to make our desired change happen. We want to push, work, cajole it into being. But in complexity, that's not the way. What is the way when it comes to complexity? As you pointed to at the top of the show, complexity is about experimentation. Right. It's it's about being able to respond to what's happening right now. What is the context? What is the situation in this moment? And then what are the forces that I can in fact influence in this moment? So whereas we like to know and we like control. Complexity is about not knowing, and it's about influence. We like to get things right, and complexity is about learning. So my assertion, after spending my whole career in this question of how do leaders handle complexity better, my assertion is that we can learn to not just tolerate, but actually love complexity. Not all the time, but much of the time. But it, but it is not natural. That is a thing we have to learn. I have seen this so much in my own practice and in working with our members. We 
when we begin our academy cohorts, I'm making an invitation to our members to take on a commitment for a period of time, usually around 60 days. And we're trying something out. And intellectually, everyone is always really gung-ho for that. And we Mm -hmm. get started on it. And inevitably, because we're experimenting and we're trying new things, there's always one or two people in every one of our cohorts that run into an obstacle within the first week. And we talk about that we're going to run into those obstacles. But when we do, they really struggle with that because they feel like I should have had it figured out at the start. And it feels like failure. And I have not figured out a way to say something, (laughs) point people in the direction where they don't have that experience where they feel like, at least for a time, like they feel like they failed. And I have that experience myself when I try this, even though I know that part of experimenting is is failure, is data, is it's necessary as part of the process. But it really, it, it's really a struggle to actually do it in practice. It is amazing. I mean, it is you're you're pointing to a thing that I have tried so many different ways. I once ran a leadership program, and we decided that we would have a. An experimental conference about experimentation. This was super important. They had put it in their mission and their objectives for the year. So we said, we, we don't really know how to go about this, but let's get everybody that's been on this program in a room for a couple of days and see if we can get something more experimental happening. And so we did this, we designed activities, we tried things out. And at the end, everybody thought, well, that was kind of lame. That wasn't that wasn't the greatest experience yeah. we've ever had. And I was gutted. I was gutted. I felt like such a failure. I had sleepless nights and we had and I wondered is this client going to fire us now because we've had this thing. It was fine. Like nobody said this was the worst experience of my life, but everybody was like, yeah, that was that was kind of okay. It was like a 7 out of 10. And I got on the phone and I said, I really apologize. And I've been thinking about it and I should have done this differently and I should have done that differently. And one of the one of the partners who is on the design team said, Jennifer, you get this was an experiment, right? It was, in fact, a safe to fail experiment. We marketed it that way. Everybody agreed. They came to it knowing it was experimental. Are you yourself saying that failure is impossible and failure is a thing that should never happen because that is not what you've been trying to teach us. And I, it was just this incredible moment for me. Like, oh yeah, that's right. That is what I'm saying. I am saying I never want to fail. And therefore, I guess I'm not that experimental. Mm, I appreciate you sharing that. It's I, I I could tell three or four stories like that myself. It's it's as much as we sort of know intellectually. And I think whenever I talk to our members, I mean almost everyone values the the process of experimenting, of innovating, of trying new things, of understanding the real complexity in working with people and in leading organizations. And yet it really is hard when you're in the middle of doing it. And you have this beautiful distinction that you draw in your some of your thinking and work around experimentation. And the distinction is creating conditions 
versus outcomes. Could you tell me about that distinction? You know, I've experimented a lot about experimentation, and there are some things that seem to go better. And this idea that you're pointing to is one of those ideas that has actually changed my life and seems to change the life of the people I work with. But it's a it's a little bit of a tricky idea. So let's take it slowly. It it says that generally what we want is we want something to happen. And very often the thing that we want to happen is a, a complex phenomenon. Like we want our new product launch to be successful, or we want our team to be psychologically safe, or we want our children to be happy, right? And you cannot go to any store or any consultancy and actually be guaranteed of buying any of these things. You cannot buy a successful innovation you cannot buy a happy child. You cannot buy psychological safety. You, the, these things arise. And when we think of them as a target to hit, then we almost always substitute some hittable target that stands in for the complexity of the actual thing that we care about. But if we think about creating conditions, how do I make it so that it's more likely this will arise? This is a game changer for me because you can start to think, oh, what are the conditions? And then what are the conditions over which I have influence? And who else might also have influence over these? And how do I invite them into this conversation? And suddenly you're getting a whole series of possibilities as opposed to one answer that you're trying diligently to create or achieve. There's a beautiful story in the book about a job you had years ago of making gift baskets at a gourmet store and what they did to create really amazing conditions. Could you share that? Yeah, it it, it could have been just so awful, Dave. We were. This was a, a Christmas holiday job, winter vacation job, and we had way more work than we had people. So we worked very long hours. We were on our feet in a cold, windowless basement room, mm. and our job was to put gift baskets together that were creative, artistic, that were somehow filled with not just product but love, because that was this. That was kind of the the reason people pay a premium for gift baskets is because people will feel special when they get one. It's not just a bunch of stuff thrown into a basket. It's got some artistry to it. Yeah, sure. And the the manager of this department helped us believe that we were artisans, like that this was a creative endeavor. And he made all kinds of things possible for us from when the hours were long and we were hungry, he would bring down sandwiches from the deli department to help us understand the products we were putting in the basket. He would have experts come down and share with us some of the cool things, some of the cool features in them, mostly wine and cheese and candy, other sorts of food products. This was a gourmet shop. And so we felt like we were really learning. He had wacky contests and wacky awards, and we laughed a lot, a lot together. Hmm. And actually, when I think back to that to the that experience, I remember something filled with joy and beauty, 
even though the next year he was replaced by somebody else. And that guy wanted us to, I don't even remember that guy's name. Thank goodness. He wanted us to produce as many gift baskets as possible. And he took away all of these like time wasters and had a, a big thing on the wall about how many gift baskets we had produced. And then the room was so cold mm. and so ghastly. And I hated the job that second year so much and absolutely didn't go back. And so it was a really interesting lesson for me about how one human and some thought can actually change the lived experience of the same job. It was the same job. It was the same products. It was the same little tickets that we needed to fill, right? It was exactly, everything was the same, but everything was also different. And the second person in some ways did the thing that we would most expect a typical manager to do, have a very clear outcome, have the number up on the board. And and yet when it comes to complexity, step-by-step, step, like, thinking doesn't necessarily work. It's it's taking action through thoughtful experimentation. And one of the invitations you make for us on thinking about experimentation and getting better at it is releasing your attachment to outcomes. And which is which is hard because I think traditionally we're all taught we should have outcomes. We should have objectives. We should have the quarterly goal, right? And and so many of us are charged with that, those responsibilities inside of our organizations to have measurable results. What's the value in releasing some of that? And how do you do that in the in an environment where leaders do, of course, need to hit results? Yeah. So this was this was the kind of experiment that we did leading up to this book where we're trying to think about experimentation in a new way. We tried all kinds of things. We have been teaching people how to experiment, the features of experimentation, the like how creativity happens. We've had all kinds of different goes, different approaches, different ways of supporting people, hackathons. You you kind of you name it. And the experiment that we tried in the years leading up to this book was wait, what if it's not about the experiment? What if it's about the experimenter, right? Like what if it's actually about who we are and how we're making sense of the world? And that's the thing that we can begin to play with. As we began to play with that, who are you being as you experiment? We found some things that really changed the game. And one of them was this thing, how committed are you to having a particular outcome of your experiment. Because if you are committed to this particular outcome, the odds are very good you will not be able to handle it if it doesn't go well. And you, you in fact, might not notice that it doesn't go well until very late in the game. I learned, I learned this from one of my clients who is a chief executive of a, of a, a company and they had launched this innovation. They had they had launched it in in the complicated world, right? They had done their research and they knew exactly what to do and they put a ton of money into it. And it was the most expensive innovation they'd ever tried as they launched this new product line that was exactly perfect for the time two years ago when they had begun 
imagining it, right? Mm. But it it launched into a world that had been sig- significantly different, and it was a complete failure, like a, just an utter failure. What people wanted from this product had completely changed over the two years that it had taken them to develop this solution, and it it tanked. It tanked in a public way and in a way that the market mocked this company. It was their their biggest, most observable failure. And he discovered, as a relatively new chief executive that hadn't been there for the whole pathway, he discovered that nobody would talk about this product. Nobody would talk about it. And when he brought it up, people would change the subject. And this is a story I've heard again and again and again at organizations where some product has launched quite badly, is that people don't want to talk about it. They change the subject. They look away. In this particular institution, people would cry sometimes when they talk about this product. Mm. And he finally had a an all-hands meeting and he said, look, this was a, whatever the number was, an $80 million, whatever the number was, mistake. And it was actually, it was actually a huge investment in our collective learning We invested all this money for us to be able to learn something together. And we cannot realize even $1 of that investment unless we talk about it. And and he said, "So, so let's start realizing our investment. And by his reframing this idea from like, this was a terrible screw up and you should be ashamed to, yeah, this wasn't what we expected at all, but let's learn like crazy from this. He made it talkable and he made it learnable. And suddenly people could say, oh yeah, there was this and this and this and this and this and this and this. And they ended up spending like the next 12 months really trying new things and succeeding a ton because they could talk about what hadn't gone well in the last one. I'm so glad you mentioned this because I have noticed the same pattern on the micro level when we're doing leadership development work that almost inevitably the people who make the most progress in shifting their behavior of doing something differently in a way that they want to do or maybe they've received feedback on are those that started off, ran into an obstacle, had all the frustration and the challenge that comes with that, as I mentioned earlier, but then find a way to talk through it. And inevitably utilize that time and that that challenge to then learn something from it that points them in the direction that ends up being way better than it seems like. I haven't kept numbers on it. Maybe I should. But like it seems like the people who go through like that first initial failure or struggle end up in the long run being better off by having learn from that than the people who maybe kind of get lucky and hit the first iteration the first time and they're they're off and running there's a there's an aspect of sustainability and and comfort within the learning process that emerges if they're willing to look at it and examine it and talk about it it's it's so interesting to me that story of the importance of just stopping and acknowledging and talking about what could we learn from this it is why one of the things we write about in the book is this idea of humility, right? Actually, our our sense that we we shouldn't screw up 
right? We shouldn't have failures. We should have experiments that all go perfectly well. This is kind of a form of arrogance, right? This is kind of a form of believing we are gods in some way. And putting that down and saying, huh, I can't know. I just can't possibly know. And so I'm going to try. I'm going to, I'm going to try and stumble and try and stumble. My colleague Akasha and, and his colleague Vernus Jones, they, they are helping us learn how to be in the intercultural space, which is a, this is a space where we obviously don't know good ways to, to be in thriving, diverse spaces in every organization. And they talk about this idea of stumbling forward together, right? We're going to stumble. We're going to screw this up. The point isn't to not screw it up. The point is to know we're going to screw it up and then figure out how to recover, how to learn, how to connect through the stumbling. And I just find that idea so liberating. It's just Mm. so liberating to not be thought to to not hold the thought i need to i need to get this perfect right out of the gate when you work with leaders who are able to lean into humility a bit better what is it you see them do either in their actions or their thinking that helps them to get there a bit faster i mean some of it is contextual right some of it is what what is the world dashing up for people And in a world of complexity, we are often served a meal of difficulty, right? Things we couldn't plan on, things that go unexpectedly wrong, things that were perfect in their their dreaming phase, but in the reality into which they land, struggle. And so the, the leaders who go farther are the leaders who can take the Oh, the shock, the disappointment of it, and neither turn their frustration out at others and and do the blame thing, which is not helpful, nor turn their frustration in on themselves and do the internal self-blame thing, also not helpful, but really begin to take a learning approach, really say, whew, okay. This part wasn't that fun, but there's probably a lot for me to learn here. And the leaders who who do this well begin to speed that process up, to notice, do I automatically turn the blame inwards or outwards? Because we tend to have habits about that. Mm -hmm. And then once I notice that, can I catch myself doing it? And then can I know that this is me just kind of discharging my pain in in this way? And... Can I stop doing that? And can I do this other thing that's more generative? So helpful. Thank you. One of the other invitations you make around experimentation is don't shy away from endings. And, and one of the pieces of that is putting an end date on experiments. What's important about an end date? This has been, this has been really, I would never have known this. I've never read it anywhere. This has been really important. Humans are additive. And the leaders I work with, the leaders you work with, the folks listening to us, we're busy, right? We're busy. And you put something new on my plate 
And often my plane just doesn't hold anything new, right? I just can't do it because the thing that happens is you put this on my plate and then somebody else puts something on my plate and it, it's just too much. And so the thing that I have, that I've learned over time is saying, I'm going to try this for X weeks and then I'm going to stop. And then I'm going to see what happens when I stop, right? This is not a change I have to make forever. I'm going to do whatever, whatever this thing might be. I'm going to capture notes on a post-it note every morning when I get to work for two weeks. And then I'm going to take stock or whatever it might be. I'm going to do this small thing and then I'm going to see. And it gives people permission, first of all, to commit to something that they can't imagine doing forever because lots of people fall down in the commitment phase. Like I'm going to give up sugar for the rest of my life. No, you're not. You don't have to do that. <laughs> like yeah. it's too big. Yeah. You can, you can try a sugar-free diet for the next two weeks or they, they find that they've just got so much going on. One of the things that's been really useful is getting people to just stop doing things that an experiment can be about stopping something, letting it die you started to have this meeting during COVID. It was super helpful, help people feel connected. Maybe it's time for that meeting to end. Maybe it's time to not do it. And so to remember that these things are mortal, that they have their lives and that they can come and go, I think is super important for us. Yeah. And you said the word a bit ago, additive, and like how often our tendency is to on on many things, add something new and not to necessarily think about pairing back or ending something. And it's been interesting for me to notice over the years, like how, I don't know if it's a majority of the time, but certainly a, there's a significant amount of time when we get to a place where good leadership development is to decide to stop doing something that you've done for a long time because it's not the right thing anymore. And maybe it wasn't even the right thing at at the beginning, but it, it's the, I hear you making that invitation to be okay to stop and pair back. Like that's worth examining as well. This has been one of the, this is, I think is one of the major challenges of leaders who are scaling to bigger positions is that they've developed a series of habits or patterns that are very effective for them at like the general manager state that are no longer possible when they get 10 times as many direct reports or people in their in their unit and they find that the the thing that helps them the most is not what they're doing but what they give up doing and once again our identity gets all wrapped up in this i can't tell you how many leaders i've talked to who say I am the kind of person who has an open door policy. And so therefore, anybody who wants to talk to me at any time, I will stop and talk to them. And that is a beautiful idea. But if you run a team of six, that's really different than if you run a division of 6,000 or you run a unit of 60,000, right? Like the, the, the level of demand is just really different and you have to make a different, you have to make a different set of choices, which often means giving up something that made you successful on your way to here. I can't help but notice in reviewing your work, the thread of learning and growth throughout all of your work and the humility, as we talked about earlier, 
of of doing things differently and trying things that don't work. And in the spirit of experimentation, I'm curious, as you've written this book and been working with clients over the last few years, what's what's something around experimentation that you've changed your mind on? Oh my goodness, so many things. Oh my goodness. So maybe one of the things is that if you just teach people how to do it, that the problem is that people don't know how to do it. And then my second my second approach was the problem is people don't have contexts that enable them to do it. And then I thought maybe people don't have bosses who encourage them to do it. So I've tried all of these different things. You get the bosses aligned, you get the bosses and the people in the room, you create experiment boards, you create like safe to fail spaces, you make sure everybody really understands what the difference between an experiment and an initiative is. Like there was all this, first of all, knowledge that I thought would do it. Then kind of contextual support that I thought would do it. And now I think there's a a lot of identity stuff that gets in the way. But I I think that I'm noticing even as a result of your good question that I've probably, the answer in complexity to is it this or this is almost always yes, it's both. In this case, there's probably knowledge around what an experiment is and isn't that would be useful. And there are contexts that make it easier or harder for us to experiment. And there's identity stuff. It's all of these things. And I probably have moved from kind of thing to thing to thing looking, which I shouldn't do because I know better, for the kind of Mm -hmm. silver bullet that will unlock this experimenting genius that we have in us that we know we can access in the right circumstances, but that we often, often, often don't access at work. Jennifer Garveyberger is the co-author of Unleashing Your Complexity Genius, Growing Your Inner Capacity to Lead. Jennifer, thank you so much for your work. Thanks so much, Dave. It was really fun to talk. If this conversation with Jennifer was helpful, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 273 with Mindy Dana, one of Jennifer's colleagues. We talked about the essentials of adult development. I still think about that conversation often, and the model is talked about a bit in Jennifer's book as well, on just our own development as people thinking about that through the lens of ourselves, but also thinking about it through the lens of the people that we are working with and supporting. I think it's a really helpful way to think about adult development and the common stages, episode 273 for that. I'd also recommend episode 476, speaking about experimentation, how to pivot quickly. Steve Blank was my guest on that episode. We talked about the process of looking at things through the lens of a minimum viable product or service and the lean startup movement, how to be able to have regular conversation and interaction with the people you're serving so that you can make change quickly. Because, of course, the best ideas do not come at the very beginning. They come through experimentation, pivoting, so essential in so many of our organizations these days, episode 476 for that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 513. Jennifer cites the work of Lisa Feldman Barrett in her book. She's one of the top neuroscientists. We had her on episode 513 talking about how to help your brain learn, looked at some of the science and biology behind our brains, 
fascinating work from her and uh, just a wonderful way to begin to think about what is the biology that we're all hardwired with? How does that relate to our learning and growth? Again, not only for ourselves, but for others. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you haven't already, I'm inviting you today to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. That's going to open up a whole slew of benefits to you inside of the free membership on the website, including the ability to search every past episode by topic that I've aired since 2011. And one of the many benefits inside the free membership is all of the free audio courses. I have aired many audio courses over the years. They are all archived there in side of the free membership, and we've actually just rolled out a major update to the courses section of the free membership. When you go in there, in addition to seeing all the courses and having the full access, it now tracks your progress. So if you have utilized courses in the past, or as you start to utilize them, you'll be able to track individual lessons, which ones you've completed. There's a lot in there that'll be helpful to you. One of the courses is titled How to Engage Your Audience. In that course, I share some of the key principles I've learned over the years on presentation, engagement, both in my own experience, my experience from Dale Carnegie, my experience working with our Academy members, a bunch of lessons in there that'll help you with that. One of the lessons in there is just how to actually communicate and be heard in the online world. What are the microphones and technology you should be thinking about if you're doing a lot of online meetings and presentations? That and a ton more inside that course and a whole dozen of courses that are in there available for you. It's just one of the many benefits of free membership. Again, go over to coachingforleaders.com. You can set up your free membership. Next week, I'm glad to welcome Daphne Jones to the show. She's going to join me to discuss how to get noticed by key stakeholders, an important conversation for every leader in helping us to grow our careers and also growing the careers of others. Join me for that conversation with Daphne next week, and I'll see you back on Monday.